That's the way that one nation under God will always respond. Now that's a statement to consider. In this moment, ten years later, it is wise, I think, to consider again if this statement is one of reality or one of hope. Does this nation made up of peoples from nearly every other nation on earth truly honor God? Does the church, God's people, impact our nation for the sake of God's kingdom? Or is it the other way around? Are we praying for our nation and what should that even look like in our lives? What would God challenge us with on this 10th anniversary of this national tragedy? Today my hope is that we can look and consider what the Bible has to say. If you take your, uh, there's some notes in your worship folder this morning, you can follow along. We're going to be in the scriptures a lot this morning. In trying to figure out the answers to these questions, the best place to start is with the idea of citizenship. We have to realize, each of us, that my citizen, I have citizenship on earth. There is citizenship on earth. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now some of you may be thinking that's a quote from some State of the Union address, not from Romans 13. It is there, we just kind of fly through these passages like this. But we have citizenship on earth and this passage addresses that. First is the idea that human government is an institution ordained by God with God-given responsibilities for its citizens. Human government is an institution ordained by God and it has God-given responsibilities for its citizens. Look at this phrase. There is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Good or bad, God has given us governments that serve His high purpose. God uses civil leadership to bring judgment and rule to a society. Now, it's hard to see bad governments, what we would consider bad governments, as ministers of God. But we're assured here that God ultimately uses them for His kingdom purposes. Keep in mind that the letter to the Romans was written in the middle of Roman rule. And Roman rule was not only unsupportive of the rise of Christianity but became downright anti-Christian in its persecution of the church. And yet, God ultimately uses and used that for His kingdom purposes. 
In Psalm 72, we find King David's prayer for his own leadership and his own nation. And I believe many of the God, God's desired roles for government are in this passage. Nothing speaks better than Scripture itself. So I want to read Psalm 72. And as I do, think through what God would say are the responsibilities of the government and our leadership. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May we have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And so government is an institution that's ordained by God and has God-given responsibilities to its citizens. And as citizens, every one of us has God-given duties to our government. Every citizen has God-given duties to their government. Matthew 22, verse 21, a well-known verse in Scripture says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So there are duties that each of us have as citizens to our government. In Romans 13, this phrase, be subject to. We are to be subject to our leadership. It simply means to be under the authority of. We're not to resist, this passage says, God's appointed authority. Ultimately, though, there is no higher authority except for God. According to Acts 5.29, that says we must obey God rather than men. When man's law violates scripture, we must obey the higher authority. Now, this is not to say that everything that government might do or say that we disagree with is a reason to rebel or a reason to ignore our government. There is a difference. There is a difference between political viewpoints and biblical morality. There are moral imperatives in scripture but they're also our opinions 
and they cannot merge. We have to know the difference between one and the other. When our government tells us to do something that is in violation of biblical morality, we should have one way of looking at that and responding. But when it comes down to different political viewpoints that we can't really stand on the Bible, then we need to look at that differently. And we dare not try to find a verse in the Bible that proves our viewpoint. Because usually that means we're misquoting it. Our citizenship is on earth. And government is an institution ordained by God. It has responsibilities to the people. And we as its citizens have responsibility to our government. Yes, we have citizenship on earth. But we also have citizenship in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not of this world. John eighteen thirty six says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. You say, why did Jesus say it three times? Remember the 12 guys he was working with? (laughs) They needed it repeated. A lot. And they still didn't get it. They still thought Jesus had come to set up an earthly kingdom. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. By the way, did you hear me? My kingdom is not of this world. And by the way, let me repeat, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus says that the absence of resistance to his arrest is because of his priority on a kingdom that is better than a kingdom on earth. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to fight for a kingdom that's temporal. My kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this world and a Christ follower's true citizenship is not either. The Christ follower's true citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. See, I'm not real smart. You just read what it says and then I just say what it says. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christ followers first and priority citizenship is not earthly, but eternal in nature. It is from this kingdom that we gain our real freedom. The spiritual freedom that comes only in a life transformed by Jesus Christ. That is where our real citizenship lies. And so for those of us who are Christ followers, we are dual citizens of this nation or of another nation and the kingdom of God. We are dual citizens. We have dual citizenship in a nation here on earth and in a kingdom ruled by God. So what are our responsibilities as dual citizens? I think there are several. The first, I believe, is to acknowledge and repent of my own sin. To acknowledge and repent of my own sin. Now, that may seem like an odd place to start. But let me tell you how we get there. Second Chronicles 7.14, and I have to have this verse memorized because I went to Jerry Falwell's university and, and it's just, it just seems like a requirement. To... Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, here's where I differ with my mentor. 
This verse is often used to say that healing will come to the United States if Christians do what this verse says. I believe this is dangerous exegesis. Since it is a promise given directly to God's chosen people, Israel. It may not be wise to say that this applies to other peoples and other nations. But what we can gain from this passage is the fact that Christians, God's people, should be known to be a people who acknowledge and repent of our sins, humbling ourselves before God, seeking Him exclusively and turning from those things that draw us away from Him. Christians are known for a lot of things. And I wonder if at the top of that list is our humble seeking of God and repentance of our own sins. Or is it looking down our long bony noses at other people's issues? Before we look at our own. There's an interesting statement in Proverbs 14.34 that says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Our first responsibility as dual citizens should be to live righteously and to flee from sin for the sake of righteousness in our nations. And we'll talk about this more in a few moments. A phrase at the end of this passage in Second Chronicles 7 is very interesting. We don't memorize this one, but it's extremely important. Verse 22 says, because they abandoned the Lord, he has brought all this disaster on them. Should Christians not live lives that honor Christ? Because if we don't, we're not commending the gospel. And we have essentially abandoned the Lord and we have separated ourselves from the possibility of His blessing. Righteousness does exalt a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. We can stand on that fact. And we as dual citizens of heaven, of an earthly nation, need to live righteous lives that bless our nation. Second, I believe we're to acknowledge and repent for the sins of our nation. We're to acknowledge and repent for the sins of the nation that we belong to in an earthly sense. In Daniel 9, we see Daniel praying for his nation, the nation of Israel. Beginning in verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. Daniel confessed the sins of the nation of Israel. Later in the prayer, he asked for the Lord's anger to turn away. He prays that God would forgive the nation of its sins. He even begs God at one point to pay attention to his prayer. We are to pray in repentance for the sins of our nation. One pastor's now famous prayer for our nation was this. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. 
We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. We are to acknowledge and repent of our own sin. And we are to acknowledge and repent of the sins of our nation. Third, I believe we are to pray for our nation's leaders. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1, says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. This passage is really simple to understand. All sorts of prayer for all sorts of people. We're to pray for others, but especially for those who are our leaders. Now, some would interpret this passage to say that we are to pray for our leaders so that we have peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified. I believe what it, if you really look at it, it simply is telling us as believers that this discipline of taking everything and everyone to God in prayer will create in us the lifestyle that we see here, one that is peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. Describes the lifestyle that Paul describes in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. And so we pray for our leaders. We pray for our leaders because it commends the gospel. It lives it out. When we pray for our leaders, we keep ourselves from jumping into what I call national inquirer politics of innuendo and gossip. But we pray for our leaders. Now, I'm not against government. I believe we ought to pray for our leaders. At one point, I was actually an elected official. A ward committeeman, which means, you know, 12 people vote for you and you're in office. My youngest son, hopefully this week, will begin work on Capitol Hill. So I'm not against politics. I'm not against government. But what I, does bother me that I think we see in our society today is this National Enquirer style of politics where we spend our time in innuendo and gossip and name-calling rather than really praying for our leaders. Practically, what should we pray for them? I believe we should pray for protection from evil, for a strong family, for wisdom in every aspect of their responsibilities, for the ability to inspire us to a common and high vision of justice and righteousness and unity and citizenship. That's what we should be praying for our leaders. But as we do, Al Mohler, who is the president of Southern Seminary, would warn this. He says, we must be stripped of an unhealthy and idolatrous confidence in the power of government to save us. God has given us the gift of government in order to restrain evil, uphold righteousness, and provide for civil order. No human ruler can save. 
No government or office holder can heal the human heart, solve the sin problem, or accomplish final justice. These powers belong to God and to God alone. We should pray for our leaders. First, we repent of our own sin. We repent of the sins of our nation and we pray for our leaders. But as dual citizens, I think there's something else we need to realize. That we need to be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Because we are dual citizens, these citizenships may at times clash. And we need to be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be that outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The believer can inexplicably rejoice in suffering with this joy as a prelude to the joy that is to come at the return of Christ. The context here indicates that this is suffering brought on by formal means. Verse 15 lists crimes that are obviously overseen. Their punishment is overseen by the government. So the indication here is that most likely there is government persecution of the church, much like was taking place under Roman rule. The amazing thing is, though, that this judgment here is not punitive but purifying. God uses it to cleanse the church. Our suffering as God's people refines us. Several years ago, I was in China... And I was in a room with underground church pastors in China. It was kind of an odd evening because we knew that the secret police were following us, which just kind of gives you the creeps. And uh, when you're walking down the street and you see a guy with a wire and uh, an ear, earphone, and uh, we were meeting with these pastors and we wanted to pray for them. And they said, before you pray for us, we want to tell you what not to pray for us. And their next statement was shocking because we thought we had it figured out. They said, do not pray that persecution will end. Do not pray that persecution will end. Well, this messed us up because that was what we were going to pray. He said, don't pray that persecution will end because if it does, the church will be negatively impacted and it will struggle with its purity. Why? Because God uses suffering to refine us and to cleanse us and to purify us as a people. There's a little phrase in verse 18, scarcely saved. If the righteous is scarcely saved, that doesn't mean just barely. It means in the midst of suffering. Saved in the midst of suffering. The true believer comes through. 
our suffering for the cause and message of the gospel won't stop us. We'll come through because the gospel is more powerful than anything that a government may possibly throw at us. You see, we entrust our lives to the sovereign and faithful creator just as Jesus did in his suffering. And then last, I'd like to commend to you this idea that we let the gospel set a new standard of conduct for our life as citizens. That we let the gospel set a new standard of conduct for our life as citizens. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27, says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Under Roman rule, persecution of Christ's followers was intensifying. There were several reasons for that. One, they were connected with the Jews somehow, and the Roman government kind of figured this is just like a branch off of that, and the the Jews weren't exactly popular in Roman government, and so there was problems with this new branch that they saw. Paul was not especially popular with the Romans. He was constantly creating problems everywhere he went by the message that he preached. But Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he'd throw that at him now and then. And that would cause him problems. And as I recall, Jesus wasn't overly popular with the Roman government. But it was intensifying. The persecution of Christ's followers was intensifying. And yet, Paul says to the Philippians, your manner of life should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is likely talking about our civic conduct in relationship with the government. Both Jesus and Paul were accused of treason. Of course, we know that the truth was that they advocated submission to governmental authorities, yet it wasn't seen that way. But our manner of life, the way we conduct ourselves as citizens, should be an example of the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, in Him... In Christ, we died to sin and were buried. In Him, we were raised to new life. If we have died to sin and have been raised up to a new kind of life, how can we continue to live in sin? The gospel sets a new standard of conduct for us. If we receive the forgiveness of sins by grace, how can we refuse as Christians to forgive those who sinned against us? If we were once alienated from God as sinners and by the gracious work of Jesus Christ we have been reconciled to God and to men, then how can we refuse to be reconciled to others even though they may have sinned against us? The gospel sets a new standard of conduct. And by His grace we are to live up to that standard as dual citizens. Paul urges the Philippian saints here to live up to the gospel standard whether he's present or not. And as we learn from Pastor Steve in the, earlier in this series on prayer, our obedience to the gospel standard is not out of duty, but out of delight. 
Bill Hybels says that character is who you are when no one's looking. We're to live up to the gospel standard. Paul's specific instruction here concerns the civic conduct of the saints in the face of opposition and persecution. This isn't good times. This is in the midst of persecution and opposition. The Philippians are urged to stand and to strive together for the faith of the gospel. This is a call to unity with a specific goal in mind, that of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost community. The expression here in this passage is striving together. It implies the idea of standing firm in the proclamation of the gospel. And that's going to take place in the face of resistance and opposition. And that discipline and perseverance are going to be required to do it. It is striving that must be done together. Something like the old game of -of tug-of-war, where every member of the team has to give his or her full effort, hopefully in concert with the rest of the team, that we strive together for the sake of the gospel. Also here, he tells the Philippians to not be frightened or intimidated in any way by the opposition. I don't think that Americans have a real grasp of what Paul is talking about here. But Christians in other parts of the world know exactly what Paul is talking about, and they know it all too well. Men and women who profess faith may well be beaten and raped or even killed by those who oppose the gospel. In some parts of the world, the saints are kidnapped and sold as slaves. Churches and houses of believers may be burned down, and in many cases, employment can be forbidden. In the face of such efforts, to defeat and destroy Christianity, the church must stand together and stand tall, not frightened by the evils that may come, and most importantly, not being silenced regarding their faith. As dual citizens, Scripture challenges us to let the gospel and its impact in our lives set a new standard of conduct. Followers of Christ should be the best citizens. Why? Because we have a new standard of conduct given to us because of the gospel. And so we find ourselves back at our original questions. Does this nation, made up of peoples from nearly every other nation on earth, truly honor God? Does this church and does the church, God's people, impact our nation for the sake of God's kingdom or is it the other way around? Are we praying for our nation and what should that even look like? What would God challenge us with on this 10th anniversary of this national tragedy? I believe that with what we have studied today in mind, I would offer this guiding principle. The gospel is the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It is the declaration of how God has made it possible for men to obtain the forgiveness of their sins and the assurance of eternal life. And that gospel sets a new and higher standard of conduct for dual citizens that we are commanded to live up to. And so we pray for our nation. So where do we begin? Well, we're going to begin here. And as a congregation this morning, we're going to kneel and pray for our nation. Here's where I think we can begin. We are dual citizens 
So let's begin with ourselves, confessing and repenting of our own sins of not living up to the gospel standard for our lives. All the while knowing that we must do this, whether it is in freedom or in persecution, that the standard does not change. We need to humbly take our nation's sins before God, begging for His mercy and His grace. And we need to pray for our civic leaders in a matter manner in line with scripture so i want us together to come before god's throne and pray for our nation we want to turn this whole place into an altar so i want us to just kneel together either where you are at your seats or here at the front let's come before our nation humbling ourselves and praying and seeking god's face